everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. We have on our show this week, Jen Mauses, who gets the honor of being the first guest to have been on our show twice. And this week she's going to talk about a case that is before the Third District Court of Appeals. And it's extremely important because it could help to determine whether or not 1437 is constitutional. And 1437 is felony murder reform. And I'm going to allow Jen to explain what 1437 is and what felony murder is. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you, David, for having me. So, um, so can you explain what 1437 is? The 1437 is really groundbreaking legislation. It was signed into law by Governor Brown, and it did two, two things that were really important. One was to completely eliminate the natural and probable consequence theory of uh, liability for murder. So under nat- natural and probable consequence theory, Somebody could be prosecuted for murder if they did an act that was not otherwise unlawful, uh, that the natural and probable consequence of which would result in death. Those were often used in uh, gang prosecutions. Uh, in one case I had, they, uh, there was a verbal argument between two groups of gang members, uh, the Stars and the Geta gang members in Sacramento County. And it was a purely verbal argument. Uh, They were saying F you on one side, and on the other side, they were saying F you back. Uh, So there was no actual criminal conduct between either side. Uh, It was in the hallway of a a, a Holiday Inn Express. And so you have uh, two groups just uh, telling each other off. And uh, one person out of one group who was at that time high on cocaine um, decided as the other group was leaving to shoot uh, down a, a stairwell as the other group was leaving and in a ricochet, unlucky ricochet shot, he hit one of the other, the gang members from the other side and killed him. Uh, so my client and his entire group of 11 people, 10 of whom had only said F you and other rude things to the other group, were all prosecuted for first-degree murder under the natural and probable consequence theory, the theory being that gang members who engage in uh, verbal ar- arguments 
uh, with other gang members, the natural and probable consequence of that verbal argument would be that a death would result. So 1437 have completely eliminated that theory of prosecution. Uh, and that was a ridiculous, ridiculous use of that law uh, it, in my case. And I am thrilled that 1437 has eliminated uh, that theory of prosecution. Uh, in addition to completely eliminating 14, uh, the natural and probable consequence theory uh, of liability, it severely limited the felony murder uh, theory of liability. So felony murder, uh, as many people actually uh, are aware, hopefully, um, allows uh, uh, for prosecution for murder people who not only were the uh, the shooter or the actual killer uh, in, in, in the murder, uh, but it also allows the prosecutor to go after and uh, for murder or screw murder, anybody involved in, uh, in the crime for uh, inherently dangerous felonies like robbery, carjacking, first degree burglary, anybody involved in any part of that crime so, for instance, if um, a group of individuals get together and they decide to go rob a grocery, uh, liquor store, and, and one person is just the driver, uh, one person is the lookout, and the other person is only supposed to go in and say, hey, give me your money. Uh, so the, the plan goes on and the person goes in and says, hey, give me your money, and the clerk uh being scared, has a heart attack, and dies. Uh, the uh, all three under the felony murder rule, as it used to be uh, used, uh, would be guilty of first degree murder because they all uh, agreed to commit a robbery. They all played their parts in the robbery. Robbery is an inherently dangerous um, uh, crime, and uh, so they did not under the old law, have to know that a death would result. They did not have to plan for death to occur. Uh, they did not have to take any part in the actual death in order to be guilty of first-degree murder. The law would impute the, uh, the intent to kill uh, from their intent to commit that inherently dangerous felony. So um, now under 1437, you cannot be prosecuted uh, for the felony murder rule unless you acted with um, reckless indifference to human life. You have to you have to play a, a substantial part in the underlying felony. It has to be one of the inherently dangerous felonies, and you have to play a substantial role in that underlying felony. And you have to act with reckless indifference to human life. Uh, to be prosecuted for murder if you are not, in fact, the actual killer. So it really limits the number of people who now can be um, prosecuted under that felony murder theory. Um, it, it completely eliminates, in my scenario that I just gave, the driver, because even though the driver did participate in the underlying felony, uh, the, the driver didn't act with reckless disregard for human life uh, just by driving. In fact, he had no idea a death would occur and probably didn't know that a death occurred maybe probably until after the fact. 
Same thing with the lookout system. Um, and maybe even, you know, not the actual person that went in the store because the person died of a heart attack. Now, if that person then called 911 and said, hey, uh, I came in the store, I, I, I asked him for his money and, and he just had a heart attack, there would be a real issue as to whether that person was the actual killer. Uh, and there would be definitely an issue as to whether that person acted with reckless disregard of human life. So for 1437 severely limits uh, who, who now would be prosecuted under felony murder. So I think that was a really good explanation of 1437. And, and what you can see is that under the old law, uh, there were, it was wide open uh, to basically punish people very severely uh, for very minor roles in the actual killing of somebody. Um, well, and- no, they, they punished them very severely for having no role, absolutely no role. Many of the people we are seeing coming back for relief under 1437 had absolutely no role in the killing, often no knowledge. Many people were not even in the vicinity of where the killing took place. Many people had no idea until after the fact. Um, so not only they played no role, and it was the abuse by prosecutors across the state that required a change in the law because prosecutors could not exercise self-control when it came to the application of the felony murder rule. I hate to cut you off, but, but the reality is there are many people in prison right now who uh, are in prison for first-degree murder that absolutely never killed a person, did not know somebody would be killed, did not want anybody killed, and uh, yet they are serving life for killing a human being. Well, I was going to go a step further and, and point out that it's been misused to the point where people who weren't even involved in the underlying uh, offense have ended up uh, in the system. And so we've seen, looking at wrongful conviction cases, uh, people that are completely innocent who somehow get dragged into these things using felony murder. Um, so, well, it, yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, you know, at least in theory, the prosecution does have to prove and did have to prove in each case that the person did participate in the underlying felony in order to prove the felony murder uh, case. You know, so... Um, for each person who is currently in prison, either they pled to the robbery, uh, the carjacking, the, the residential burglary, whatever the underlying inherently dangerous felony was, um, or they were convicted of it at, uh, at, uh, at trial. They, now, they may be wrongfully convicted, but they were convicted. Um, they had to have been in order for felony murder to have applied. Um, but th- there's no doubt in my mind that there are people who are wrongfully convicted uh, and thereafter had the felony murder rule applied to them. And so you have somebody who's wrongfully convicted of uh, underlying felony. And then having been wrongfully convicted of that felony, uh, had the felony murder rule applied to them. And now you know, instead of being, you know, um, serving eight years, uh, for, uh, you know, a robbery or a carjacking, they're now serving 25 to life because instead of serving the sentence for that underlying felony, 
they get the double whammy. They get the 25 to life because the felony murder rule applied because somebody died in the course of that underlying felony. So let's and that is a travesty. Move on to the Davidson case. So what was the underlying issue in the Davidson case, the crime that occurred? Well, in Mr. Davidson's case, there are a number of people that were involved, um, some of whom are still involved in the case, some of whom are not. Um, the, the actual killer, Mr. Beccaro, uh, is currently very close to going to jury trial in that case. Uh, a number of other people, um, Mr. Adams and Mr. Lopez and some others, uh, are still pretrial uh, for various reasons. Um, currently, Mr. Lopez and Mr. Davidson are uh, before the Third District Court of Appeal um, regarding uh, the issues you discussed, which is constitutionality of 1437 and also applicability, whether they are entitled to relief under 1437. Uh, the facts of, of uh, his case are, you know, a, a little convoluted, but essentially this. Uh, there was a group in um, basically the Placerville, El Dorado area, California, that uh, wanted to sell marijuana. Uh, they contacted a different group, mostly based out of South Lake Tahoe, that wanted to buy marijuana, approximately 100 pounds of marijuana. Uh, those two groups wanted to get together for the sale of that marijuana in South Lake Tahoe uh, at a Beverly Lodge in, in South Lake Tahoe. Uh, Mr. Davidson had met the people who wanted to sell the marijuana the day before uh, when they were packaging it. In fact, there had been an attempt to sell it, uh, sell it the day before uh, that kind of fell through. Um, the next day, uh, they tried to sell it again, and uh, Mr. Davidson went up there for the, the marijuana sale. Um, Mr. Davidson uh, really had not much to do with it. He was uh, just driving with some of the other guys involved in, in the sale. Uh, other individuals um, went into this motel room for the purposes of consummating the sale, uh, and uh, two individuals uh, who were not in the vehicle with Mr. Davidson decided uh, that they wanted to rob uh, some individuals in that motel room of the marijuana or the money, either one. They went, they went into the, uh, by the car where the couple of the individuals were, and they tried to grab uh, their bag. And they didn't know again if it contained the marijuana or the money, but they tried to grab the bag. Uh, the victim uh, pulled a gun on those two individuals, and an uh, argument and fight ensued. And uh, one of the, uh, Mr. Beccaro, ended up shooting the, the victim. Uh, Mr. Davidson, while this was all happening, was in a parking lot uh, where he could neither see or hear anything that was occurring and had nothing that he could do uh, to either stop, assist, help, nothing. I mean, he did not know that there was a robbery occurring at that time. Um, and uh, only thereafter, uh, Mr. Vaccaro, um runs out 
and uh, tries to get in Mr. Davidson's car and ultimately does. Of course, Mr. Davidson doesn't know that there's been this homicide. Uh, they go to a motel and ultimately leave. Um, so the uh, issue is whether, one, Mr. Har- Davidson played a substantial role in the underlying felony. Uh, and it is our position he did not. He did not know there was going to be a robbery. Uh, he went up there for the sale of marijuana. He did not go up there for the uh, robbery of marijuana. Uh, two, whether he acted with reckless disregard of human life. Um, and he, not being anywhere in the area of where the homicide occurred, not having anything to do uh, with its commission or even knowledge that it occurred, uh, he did not and could not act with reckless disregard for human life. Um, so under those that test, that 1437, which is uh, if constitutional, is now the law, I, he, he cannot be prosecuted uh, under that felony murder theory of liability. And there's no other murder theory of liability for which he can be prosecuted. So it's our position and, and what is for the third district court of appeal uh, that he cannot be he, his case must be dismissed he can no longer be prosecuted and and so that's where we're at there now the da disagrees with that view of the case um and we'll get into constitutionality in a minute but uh they argue that he's more culpable than you're arguing well i mean they're going to argue what they need to argue um, the attorney general actually uh, argues sort of in line with what the DA argues factually. You know, they think that um, somehow because Mr. Davidson was was with some of these folks the day before, he must have pointed them out so that Mr. Vaccaro knew who had the drugs or the money. Um, there, there's no proof of that. There's no there's no indication or proof that that. Um, what he did. Um, and quite to the contrary, uh, there are text messages and calls going on between uh, Mr. Lopez and Mr. Vaccaro, uh, where Mr. Lopez very well could have been doing that. There's no indication that it was Mr. Davidson and not Mr. Lopez that, that did that. Um, so I, I'm sure they do have their theory of what they think happened. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have any evidence that would, would support that theory. Um, and and uh, that theory is, is speculative at best. Uh, so it, lacking any evidence of it uh, makes it a bit difficult for them to continue to argue it. Uh, and I, and um, the, when the Supreme Court granted our petition for review, uh, seven to zero uh, recently, uh, they remanded it to the third uh, district court of appeals, uh, asking them to, to issue in order to show cause why Mr. Davidson shouldn't be granted what he asked for, which is a dismissal, specifically on why uh, it, one is it constitutional, and two, you know, why is he not entitled to release? Um, and I, I see that. The way they phrase those questions sounds to me, uh, and a, a seven to zero grant of that petition sounds to me like the Supreme Court might agree with our position. 
So what's really interesting about all of this is here we are, and we're literally at the end of 2019, and this law took effect at the beginning of 2019, and we have counties that have completely denied any petitions going through ruling them unconstitutional. And we have counties where um, I actually saw one of the first cases that went to evidentiary hearing in San Francisco, and the guys walked out, I think, in July or August. So um, we had this wide range of outcome depending on county, um, and the question is hinging on constitutionality. What What is the issue that the DAs are arguing uh, makes this unconstitutional? What they argue, uh, in my opinion, disingenuously argue, and I, and I base that on a couple things. Um, I think it's disingenuous because they were fully well aware of this legislation prior to its passage and never once brought up constitutionality. I believe it's also disingenuous because they have proffered a letter that uh, purportedly is from the Legislative Council regarding 1437 when they know uh, that that letter is in fact regarding other legislation and they proffered it, uh, uh, it in many courts in this state uh, to support their, their theory that it's not constitutional, all the while knowing it was not uh, proffered um, uh, for the purpose for which it, it was intentionally supposed to be uh, written. In other words, it was uh, a letter that was written regarding another uh, statute, not 1437, yet they proffered it to courts in this state, up and down this state, saying that it was written regarding 1437. Uh, and I believe they did that knowingly. Uh, so I, I say they argue very disingenuously for a reason. Uh, so they're disingenuously arguing that it um, unlawfully um, uh, changes Proposition 7 and it uh, unlawfully changes Proposition 115. Uh, they argue that uh, if it it is true that if you change Proposition Seven or one fifteen, it requires a supermajority, not a majority. Um, their problems with that is that it does not change Proposition Seven or one fifteen, and if it did, that the um, legislative analysts would have keyed fourteen thirty seven as uh, legislation that required a supermajority before it passed. Legislative analysts who are um, more knowledgeable in the law than uh, DA's offices who are charged with trying ca uh, cases in the superior court and have no understanding whatsoever about laws and how they're passed, uh, but who pretend to do, have that knowledge now, um, uh, legislative analysts would have seen this as requiring a supermajority. They didn't because it does not uh, change or alter Proposition 70115. So uh, they are arguing it's unconstitutional, but it's a disingenuous argument argument at best. And it and at the end of the day, um, it's an argument that will cost us millions and millions of dollars to litigate. But it is an argument that we will win and that they will lose, and that all of these individuals who have lost their hearings 
this year will get to come back when the Supreme Court finally rules in our favor, uh, and they will get to relitigate it um, with that ruling from the Supreme Court. So they are costing taxpayers enormous sums of money uh, for an argument that they know to be disingenuous. And we have evidence that it's headed in that way. Uh, so the fourth uh, district uh, last month in two cases ruled that constitutional and the attorney general has issued an opinion, actually first time in your case, where right. they argue it's constitutional. And they continued. Uh, they continued. So uh, when I filed my first writ in Mr. Uh, Davidson's case, uh, they answered my writ. At the same time, by the way, they answered Gooden um, down in the uh, fourth, uh, and uh, they agreed uh, in my case and in Gooden. At the same time, they filed it simultaneously, and they said, we agree with you. It is constitutional. And we knew, we knew that the Attorney General believed it was constitutional. Uh, they just hadn't officially announced that. Um, and they are the chief prosecutor of the state of California. Um, and they agree with us. And they will not take a position that's unconstitutional for one reason and one reason only. It is, it is constitutional. And any position to the contrary, again, is disingenuous is designed to be an obstructionist, uh, is designed not to seek justice, and is designed to cost our taxpayers millions of dollars, and more importantly, is designed to keep people in prison for reasons that have nothing to do with whether they should be there or not. It is mean-spirited, and it is awful, and they should be ashamed of themselves. So... What, what's interesting then is that in your case, um, you have the attorney general basically arguing a dual opinion. On the one hand, they're arguing that it's constitutional. On the other hand, they're arguing that even though it's constitutional, it shouldn't apply in this case. The DA has uh, submitted their own argument arguing that it's unconstitutional. Correct. So the attorney general, the chief uh, prosecutor of the state is arguing it's constitutional. Uh, the DA continues to argue it's unconstitutional, uh, which is in a brief that um, they used in the Superior Court, which is a brief that they copied and pasted uh, from a brief used in Sonoma County. Um, so they continue to use the same tired arguments they used uh, in the Superior Court and the same arguments uh, on which the uh, Supreme Court granted my petition for review um, seven to zero. So I, I don't think they are winning arguments uh, being offered by the prosecution uh, for the El Dorado County District Attorney's Office. And I'm really looking forward to how the third district of, uh, uh, court of appeal handles it. Um, and quite frankly, if, if the third agrees, uh, with the El Dorado County District Attorney's Office, um, you know, we'll, we'll seek review in, in the Supreme Court. Um, ultimately, as I said before, we expect to prevail. And it was really interesting. So over the summer, I was in San Francisco court and um, 
you know, they rejected any constitutionality issues. They went straight to an evidentiary hearing. I watched the evidentiary hearing. It was really interesting because the the DA basically still has the burden of proof in, in, in this case. So they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these guys, uh, whoever is involved, uh, actually were major participants or acted with reckless indifference to human life. And then in November and December, I've been in Yolo County, um, and the DA, um, a, a, a couple of days after uh, the rulings out of San Diego, said, well, we have to look at the ruling, but, uh, you know, we think we're going to... Uh, we think we're going to rid it. And then in December, the judge in Yolo County said, okay, it's constitutional. It's uh, the ruling from San Diego is binding on us. And the DA said, well, give us some time because we're, we're probably going to uh, rid it. So, so in Yolo County, um, they are still uh, questioning whether or not uh, it's constitutional in the DA's office. And, and what I found even more ironic than all of that is that there was um, a, uh, a memo that came down from Judge Cousins, a retired judge up in Placer County, uh, basically saying, well, the uh, San Diego decision is the law of the land, and the deputy DA in Yolo County is the son of Judge Cousins, and, and so he didn't see eye to eye with his father. Right. Well, I do. I mean, I have seen some um, discussion regarding whether, in fact, it is the law of the land, you know, because the um, they can take it up. They can take that decision up to the Supreme Court. If the court grants review, then it is not binding, you know. Um, so there is some issue because it's not final. Uh, the decision's not final in terms of whether it uh, either side wants to take it up. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that's completely settled as to whether it is binding on every court. Um, I certainly think it's a step in the right direction. I think they're correct. I mean, I think they're legally correct. And I think any court looking at this issue should find it constitutional because it, uh, is constitutional. And I, again, believe it's uh, disingenuous and weak arguments being made by the prosecution. I'm, I'm not sure um, whether uh, the, the Gooden and Lamoureux cases are binding on every uh, superior court just yet, because I do think that uh, it, it could be taken up, um, you know, and if it were taken up and the Supreme Court granted uh, a petition for review on it um, under, under Supreme Court rules, uh, that would uh, limit the use of that those cases until the Supreme, Supreme Court rules on it. And are you expecting that this is ultimately going to go to the Supreme Court and they're, they're going to end up being the final word? It has to. It has to. And do it, you... I, the, the Supreme Court, and, and for reasons, so my petition for review to the Supreme Court, which they granted, went up on, on this issue, on an equal protection issue. If my client was in his home county, his case would not be proceeding to trial. It would be dismissed because they have found 1437 constitutional. 
my client instead being in El Dorado County, where they have found it unconstitutional in his case, by the way, the first case, um, Judge Mullen being brought from outside the county up to decide his case, found it unconstitutional in El Dorado County. So in El Dorado County, they found it unconstitutional, and now he's facing a, a special circumstance murder case. So same person, same fact. In one county, he'd be have a dismissal. In another county, he's facing a special circumstance murder case. That violates the Equal Protection Clause of the state and federal U.S. Uh, federal Constitution. Um, and uh, so you can see disparate rulings regarding the same law under the same facts that, that naturally uh, you have an equal protection violation. Um, you have similarly, similarly situated people being treated differently. Um, so uh, for that reason, I think uh, it must be taken up by the Supreme Court. We cannot have people being treated differently under the same law. We just can't. And it goes all the way to jury instructions. One county finds it constitutional. They give one set of jury instructions. Major participant, reckless indifference. Another uh, uh, county finds it unconstitutional. They get the old jury instructions. We can't have that. We can't. It's one law. We must have the Supreme Court rule on it so everybody acts under one law and one set of standards. And this is not a small deal. I mean, this guy is sitting in jail for a crime that at least, uh, you know, it looks like under current law he hasn't committed. And It's he, a huge deal. It's a huge deal. He's and, been and in for way, several years, right? Yes. And I'm contacted regularly by people all over the state. And my heart breaks for every single one of them. There's a lot of people who are sitting in, in jails and prisons all through the state that we're paying for, and they are suffering, and that shouldn't be there. And that just isn't right. And my heart breaks for all of them. My heart breaks for Harvest. My heart breaks for his mother. And uh, I just wish I could make it stop. And do we know when this is going to uh, go before the third uh, well, all the briefing has been submitted, um, and that was all submitted by the 23rd uh, of this month. So now we're waiting to hear if they want to hear oral, oral arguments. Um, so, you know, right now it is before the 3rd. <laughs> now we just want to hear what they want to do with it. Okay, very good. Well... Thank you so much for coming on our show and uh, sharing with us the uh, interesting story of Davidson and the plight of 1437. Thank you very much for having me. That was Jen Mouses on Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and we will be back next week uh, with more shows illustrating everyday injustice in our legal system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening 
Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.